0: Hey, this is Bo from True Villains. Thanks, Jay and Scott, for having us on the Hook Rock Podcast. Hope
2: you guys enjoy. Don't believe me if I tell you Not a word if this is true Don't believe me if I tell you Especially if I tell you I'm in love with you Don't believe me if I tell you I wrote this song for you That just not some other silly pretty girl I'm a singer too. Don't believe a word For words are so easily spoken
1: And what's happening what's going on hope you're enjoying the summer here hope you're staying cool i know especially out on the west coast or the western states that uh, they're experiencing a incredible uh heat wave but while you're indoors and you're trying to stay cool you got the ac going you got the fans going you're drinking a nice cold of whatever uh thank you for stopping by the hook rocks once again this is jay scott this is the Hook Rocks podcast, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Great to be part of their family. If you have a chance, check out some other great podcasts as well, like Mistress Carrie, Shout Out Loudcast, Cobras in Fire, Martin Popoff, the rock historian, and recent guest Carmen Apice and his brother Vinny Apice with Ron Anesti, local Chicago promoter here, on the Hangin' and Bangin' podcast. You can catch all the new and old episodes of The Hook Rocks on the Pantheon podcast platform as well as anywhere you podcast. So not just the new episodes, the old episodes too. We have over 250. We recently just did our 250th episode with Marcy Weiser from KLOS. We recently had our two-year anniversary episode with George Lynch, a great two-hour interview with him. Very forthcoming a very different interview than George has done before so I hope you really do enjoy that you can like us on Facebook follow us on Twitter I know I said Instagram is coming it is just working out some kinks on kind of what type of content will be on there I want to do something different I know I've mentioned uh, it'll be kind of like a diary and that's kind of what I wanted to do so I'm just kind of mapping that out right now but it'll be here before you know it so stay tuned for that and don't forget to subscribe wherever you do podcasts. So you get the episodes a little bit early than what you see on social media. So you usually get them maybe a, an hour to four, sometimes five hours early. So you're able to listen to them and uh, enjoy them before the rest of the people do. Uh, also, wanted to mention that we've got some great episodes coming up. We've got some great episodes we've done in the past, like I mentioned with Marcy Weiser. George Lynch, there's the Rick Allen interview. We also did a legacy show on Def Leppard. Some great new bands that have been featured recently, like True Villains, Crownlands, uh, who else? The Hot Damn in the UK, their first interview here with a U.S. media outlet. And The Damn Truth from Montreal, Canada. Check those out and more on the Hook Rocks. Always a pleasure to be an escape for you. And we have another great episode with a return guest who's been on the show, I think, two or three times previous to that. I'm losing count in my old age here at 46. And this is going to be a new segment. We haven't figured out if we're going to do this monthly or bi-monthly or quarterly, but we're going to be bringing you some live albums that we've enjoyed in a Hook Rocks live album review. We want to lead that off with the album Live and Dangerous by Thin Lizzy, and we'd like to welcome in our guest, Rob in the Hood. What's going on, man? How are you?
0: I'm doing well, Jay. How are you doing?
1: Doing good, man. You know, in the swing of summer, doing things and enjoying uh, getting out. Hopefully we didn't take a step back here with some recent news. Let's be positive. Let's hope that things kind of get wrapped up and things don't start getting canceled and rescheduled, because that would be a total bummer. So let's be positive, let's let's continue moving forward. And you know, if you haven't gotten vaccinated, I would hope that you would think about it if you haven't done it, and hopefully you can change your mind because uh, it is important, and it is something that uh, we can go and see live shows, kind of like what we're doing today. We're talking about live albums, which came from live shows. And I know uh, Rob is a big fan of live albums and live uh, compilations. And uh, no better person to have on the Hook Rocks than to talk about this kind of stuff than Rob.
0: Thanks, Chad. I appreciate the, the thoughts. I've, I've been somewhat obsessed with uh, live albums at least over the last five years, I, I guess. And I, I think it's because there's always something in them that, that, that brings you something special that was accidental or was improvisation, um, where the artist was really feeling the music and different from the studio where obviously they spend a lot of time crafting the the product. And and so you really get a a sense of of the artist feeling the moment, I I think, in most live albums. And so I've been... Every Sunday I try to listen one in its entirety kind of as like my version of a religious thing.
1: Yeah, you know, it really does bring you to the show, right? I mean, especially the albums in the 70s because they were able to capture... You know, that vibe and that energy of a live show, whether it was based, you know, in studio magic, like some of these bands have come out over the past decade, like Kiss and even Thin Lizzy that we're going to talk about today that did kind of put the album a little bit on audience steroids and make the sound more full, make the sound more of an experience because it's really hard to get that live vibe with just standard mics. So um, they, they did record all that stuff and add that in. But it still is true to what these bands were doing back then,
0: right? The uh, it's always hard to, especially drums are hard to capture the sound uh, properly. And and for this particular album, I think that um, as good as the recording it is, and it's it's a really good sounding recording. uh, You can tell that the, the drums don't quite come through as much as if you've got them mic'd up in the studio. And it's very difficult um, from my experience being able to get drums to sound right. And and so anytime you get an album that, a live album that really brings you a full sound of, of the band, that, that's something special. But this this album uh, overall sounds great. The, the vocals are, are very good. I know there's been some controversy about some of the overdubs that were done later on after the album. Um, I actually, when I was, reviewing for this, I went through and I tried to pick out where I thought there might be overdubs. I don't have a keenly trained ear but I think they're pretty few and far between. I saw a quote somewhere that said like 75% of what you're hearing is the actual live performance and I think the dynamic between the people really comes out so that, that shows the, the live quality of it.
1: It is, you know, it, it's something that in the 70s became a big thing for bands like Thin Lizzy and you know, with the you know the success from Kiss Alive, which was released in '75, that basically pulled Casablanca Records out of bankruptcy or near bankruptcy, and really set the tone for the career of Kiss. A lot of bands tried to mirror that after that, and one of those bands was Thin Lizzy, who did have a problem breaking the U.S. Uh, there were they were a band that could never get any consistency with popularity in the United States. Of course, everybody knows the song boys are back in town to a lesser extent you have you know dancing in the moonlight you have jailbreak maybe a couple other tunes but boys are back in town is really the the signature song here in the united states and there were a lot of reasons for that too there there were reasons that phil Lynott got sick on one of the tours i think in 76 um, which they had to cancel Um, it was either 76 or 77 or maybe it was the jailbreak album that was the big album for them. It was one of those 75, 76, or 77 that really failed to propel them into superstardom here because they had all the tools. They had, you know, the great frontman who was also a great lyricist. You had this dual harmony guitars that so many other bands since then have tried to copy and mirror uh, that sound, namely like Iron Maiden and, and Metallica. But they were a band that really was big in the UK and the rest of Europe, but for whatever reason, they could never get it going in the United States.
0: Yeah, I, I think you, you've you completely, you nailed something that that I have thought for quite some time, and that is that I suspect that a lot of the influence here translated to Iron Maiden a great deal. I suspect Steve Harris was probably a significant Thin Lizzie fan. I certainly can't speak for him, but Um, I hear a lot of things, especially with this particular lineup that we're going to be talking about, that I think resonate throughout a lot of the Iron Maiden recordings, especially the dual lead guitars.
1: Thin Lizzy was such a diverse band, too. I mean, you had a a very compelling lead singer who was the face of the band in Philadelphia, who passed away, I believe it was 1983, from a septic infection. Uh, and I th- pretty much think that that septic infection was from he- heroin use, from needle use. Um, But his lyrics were tremendous. I mean, if you ever study the song and ever listen to their music outside, even Boys Are Back in Town tells a story, right? And yeah. And a lot of their music does capture a story or tell you a story of what they're thinking or is very you know, self-reflective. Uh, Phil was a very self-aware individual who would also sing about that stuff and write about that stuff in his music. You know, for instance, one of the songs, Gotta Give It Up, which I believe was on, I want to say Black Rose. I think Black Rose or, or Bad Reputation, one of the two, um, was about his drug use and in his, and how he knew he had to give it up, but he couldn't, which later then led to his death, but... um he, he was very poignant in his you know lyrics and, and and how he presented them and how he delivered them to the audience very unique um, and that delivery is felt around the rock world all the way from people like Bruce Springsteen and John Bon Jovi and the way they deliver lyrics and write lyrics to Metallica um, and a lot of bands you know like Iron Maiden so it's a very unique band where there. I mean, you know, obviously there is the Beatles and the Stones, but Thin Lizzy really does not get the credit it deserves, you know, for influencing so many artists and so many different artists from different walks of rock and roll.
0: I completely agree, and I think that uh, Scott Gorham as a guitar player um, is underappreciated. I don't want to say underrated because I think people that, that know his work don't. Um, discount what he does, but I think he's underappreciated by the larger audiences out there as to how accomplished he is and and how um, much he has given to the craft of of rock guitar.
1: Yeah. He's also very, you know, forthcoming on the history. Um, It's a very interesting interview. If you've never checked out any of the things that he's done um, really kind of gives you a good background to what was happening in the band and you know, being, you know, being playing with people like, you know, Gary Moore and John Sykes, as well as who was the other guitar player?
0: Um, there was uh, Snowy White um, was in there. And then obviously there was Brian Robertson yeah. and, and what we're talking about here.
1: Yeah. And, and, to, you know, to play with those, with that much talent um, and, and to find your spots and to have it sound the way it does um, is, is pretty remarkable. Um, again like you said a very underappreciated guitar player and an underappreciated band as as a whole um i've read phil line story in the book the cowboy song which is a biographical journey of his life through living in you know in ireland as pretty much the only black kid in the neighborhood and and you know uh, Having to deal with the racism and the upbringing, and it was very difficult for him to to uh, overcome, which he did. And then he moved to London, um, taught himself bass at a very late age, uh, became a very influential bass player, a very unique sound and a very unique way of playing, and uh, you know set forth you know in his journey with the band Thin Lizzy and. You know, one of my favorite bands of all time. Just a tremendous band, tremendous songwriting, great, uh, great albums. My personal favorite is Johnny the Fox, which is I think after Jailbreak or an album or two after Jailbreak. I don't know if uh, Fighting's before Jailbreak or after, but um, but just a great band. And we're going to be diving in here to Live and Dangerous here, which is a great live album as well.
0: Right, the, uh, yeah, The uh, I've actually pulled up the, the sequence so I can get it straight in my mind here. So this particular lineup of the band, which was uh, Phil Lynott, Scott Gorham, uh, Brian Robertson, and Brian Downey, uh, were on four albums, studio albums leading up to this album. That was Nightlife, Fighting, Jailbreak, and Johnny the Fox. And then Bad Reputation, um, which was coming out right around the time that some of this recording was done, uh, had only a uh, line of Gorham and Downey on it, but it did have about three songs, I think that had Robertson participating. And there was an issue where at some point Robertson had, uh, he, he got injured and he, and he had to stop playing in the middle of a tour. And I think that led to his eventual departure from the band. But this, this album is one where I think you're, you're hitting a band right at its peak. You've got a, a group that has gelled together. The, the band is tight. Um, you can, you can hear the, when the guitarists are playing like those harmonized lines, but the fact that they're just completely in sync with one another, um, really, really shows how much this band is, is right at its prime when it was captured on this recording, which I think was, I think that the, this, there were actually two versions of this album that were put out. I think, um, there was the original release and it was a double album. And then in like 2011, there was a reissue that added two songs. I don't have that version. I have the original version of it, um, but uh, and then I think that they released another live album that included some of the same material from these series of concerts. But you got you're talking about three concerts or three sets of concerts that were used for this material. Two were in the liner notes, um, one in London and one in Toronto. And then I saw there was a reference by the producer that. They also included some material from a Philadelphia show during the same time frame.
1: Yeah. And a lot of bands did that too. They combined shows. One of the, probably the only issue I have with this album is when I do listen to a live album, I like to hear the flow of the show, the concert, the people. I don't like it when it fades in and fades out between songs. Right. Um, that's probably the only thing that I, that I don't like about the album. Um, but the energy, you know, especially starting the album off with Jailbreak, is absolutely tremendous. Um, I, I believe that's from the Toronto show. I want to say,
0: um, and that I that I don't know. I was actually curious as to which recording, which song came from which show, yeah. and I couldn't immediately find an answer to it. But that very well may be. Yeah,
1: I believe it's the Toronto show. Um, I could be wrong too, as well. But uh, but it just starts off, you know, great energy. We really feel what Thin Lizzy was about. And that really is what this album is trying to do. It's trying to capture what you don't hear in a studio album, which is what Kiss did with Kiss Alive and what every other band tried to do after that, whether it was Thin Lizzy, whether it was uh, UFO, any band that, you know, was trying to... Because the two big live albums of the 70s, you know, were, was, was Kiss Alive and Peter Frampton's live album. Um, you know those are the two recognizable live albums of that era of that decade, and they were very successful. I think both albums were top ten, if not number one. And yeah. you know, of course, when other rock bands see that, you know, everyone's then got to flood the, you know, the the masses with with a live album or, or copy whatever someone's doing, and that's in fact what they did. And no complaint there because it's awesome, but live and dangerous that was the purpose of releasing this album was to try even and because they were unable to tour the US extensively because Phil Lynott's uh, illness I be, I think he had appendicitis I think that's why he had to cancel one of the tours I think it was after the Jailbreak album one of the reasons why was to get their live experience out to people in the United States because they were so desperately trying to break you know the United States audience All
0: right And this, and this song, I'd actually wondered as I was listening, re-listening to this album, um, if Jailbreak was the lead song of their set. And and the reason I I wondered that is because the album kind of fades in with the crowd chanting Thin Lizzy. And I wondered if that was the beginning of a show after the lights went out, or is it when the audience is waiting for an encore? And because this was, this was the, um, uh, the second single off the album jailbreak. I, I wondered if because it was a popular song, it was when they held off to an encore, but um, it is a, a good way to like suck the audience right into the album and get the energy going.
1: The producer, Tony Visconti and the band went over several hours of, of, of recordings, pretty much like three dozen hours of songs that were recorded during the tours to try to pinpoint and try to find the, the great performances. So to your point of it fading in, you know, to jailbreak, that may not have been the lead song uh, for the tour. It may have been, like you said, something that captured an energy that they wanted to lead off with that album. So, um, and also, as you you know, as you mentioned, uh, Robertson had briefly left the band prior to its release and then rejoined the band for the Bad Reputation tour. Um, and uh, you know. Lo and behold, here we have Live and Dangerous, which was just a, a well-received by people still talked about today. And here's also a little bit of a, a, a trivia thing, too, music trivia, as we go through the song list here. Um, this song, the, the song Baby Drives Me Crazy also features a young Huey Lewis on harmonica that was in right. the band Clover at the time. And he is a huge Thin Lizzy fan, was in the documentary Song for a While I'm Away, and uh, was hugely inspired by the band. So that's a little bit of an interesting note for the album, too, as well.
0: And Actually, the, that song, which is towards the end of the album, um, it, it's the only portion of the album where uh, Phil Lynott actually introduces the band by member. And I have I've said that I'm not my ear is not in tune enough with Scott Gorham and Brian Robertson's playing to know when I'm hearing one of them and when I'm hearing the other. There's some guitar players who's playing is so distinctive that you almost immediately recognize who's playing. Um, and, and I'm sure that there are, are people who study Thin Lizzie who can tell you who is who. But that uh, that particular song, um, "Baby Drives Me Crazy." gives you some hint as to who's playing if it's consistent throughout the album, because on that song, it has, um, Brian Robertson in the left channel and it has Scott Gorm in the right channel. And Scott Gorman's guitar has a flanger effect on it. And if that's consistent through all the shows, that might give you a clue as to who's playing what on the album.
1: As you l- begin listening to this album, I know you revisited it over the last week or so, how did it feel, you know, kind of going, diving back into this album after not listening to it for a while?
0: Well, it's it's certainly, uh, it, it's kind of a time capsule. It, it's like a, I don't know sightgeist zeitgeist is the right word for it, but it, it's sort of a transportational event, especially if you listen to it with like a good set of headphones, which I did, um, because it really immerses you and makes you feel like, uh, that's one of the things about a great live album is it takes you to another time and place, and it conjures up other memories, at least for me. What what the world was was like back then. Now, obviously, I was really young at the time, but I still have plenty of impressions, and so it's really like a, a dip into the culture of the time. And it really does capture
1: that moment back in the late 70s when bands were touring a lot, bands were touring extensively, and the songs that they captured, the songs that are on the album too as well, were ones that were well-received. I mean, whether it's Jailbreak, Emerald had, you know, a little bit of success. Cowboy Song is something that, you know, the band is recognized for. And also, to you know, obviously the hits like um, Boys Are Back in Town and Dancing in the Moonlight. However, my favorite track on this album, and one of my favorite tracks by Thin Lizzy in general, is Don't Believe a Word. And yeah. the guitar solo on Don't Believe a Word is one of my favorites on their studio album, Johnny the Fox. But here it really takes off. I mean, it really is something special. You know, that guitar solo is so recognizable with both Robertson and Gorham that uh, it uh, is just tremendous.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a, For me, the, the, the shining moment for, for Thin Lizzy, both studio and live, is actually the second track right after jailbreak and that's emerald um i absolutely love that song i I think it's it's masterfully done uh with the twin lead guitars um when you when you start listening to it on this particular recording it's where the the first time i really noticed the flanging effect on one guitars i had to wonder um particularly since you've talked about this in, in the recent past was the use of of the flanger here, which assuming it was Gorham that was using it, was it as a result of the influence of Eddie Van Halen, who used it on Van Halen's first album, or was it indicative of, because this was something new that was being introduced to the hard rock world. And so multiple guitar players were putting it into their um, repertoire at the same time. I was kind of curious about that.
1: Well, I mean, based on the fact that Van Halen one was recorded in, or, or released in 78, and this was primarily recorded in 76 and 77. True, true. I would think that it came before.
0: Right. So maybe it was kind of a, it was, it was something new that, that multiple guitar players were experimenting with, um, and obviously the Eddie Van Halen's use of it was kind of a defining moment. But uh, it's it's pretty prevalent on this album as well, and it's not something that I really notice on the studio albums. And with, with Emerald, uh, both that and the use of the wah and the guitar solo uh, really kind of sets it a little bit apart from the studio song. One of the things I like about Emerald, that I like about a lot of, a lot of live albums, is the, the solo holds the, the basic structure of what's on the album and, and kind of the themes that are there but it also ventures out and adds to it. And I think that's the mark of a great live album.
1: What was, in your opinion, you mentioned Emerald being the highlight for you, but what was, what do you think of the flow of the album? What, do you, what are your thoughts on that in terms of how they presented the album song by song?
0: I think, I think the flow was, was really good. I, I, they focused on disc one um, with, Stuff that was I mean, The entire album was, was focused on material with this particular lineup. There's only one song on the entire album that doesn't come from an album with this lineup. Um, but they started off, I mean, I think it's always a good idea for a band to uh, grab the audience with some energy and get them going. And you had a one-two punch with Jailbreak and Emerald here doing just that because there was a ton of energy in both of those songs. And then you get to Southbound and they kind of tone it back a little bit. And, and so throughout the album, it does a, a good job of like bringing you up and then letting you down a little bit, kind of give your the audience a little bit of a, a psychological break for a second. There's, there's moments in it where you really hear some kind of soulful, uh, lyrics and vocals from Phil Lynott, And, um, and then they punch right back into something. And so I think there's a, a pretty good song progression here that doesn't just hammer the audience to death so that you're fatigued by the time you get to disc two, um, it gives your, your your listening ability kind of a break along the way.
1: Isn't that what they're also known for on their studio albums? I mean, you can go yeah. across their you know discography and listen to albums where there's a lot of rock and hard rock. There's a lot of you know Irish folk tales in a lot of their stuff, and then there's stuff like Southbound or there's stuff like Soldier of Fortune or Running Back to You or Cowboy Song that really kind of pulls you back a little bit and it really kind of eases you in. You know, to the next songs that follow, and it's it's always right. was that push and pull within Lizzie, in my opinion.
0: Right, and they did that on on the the third track um, of this, which was Southbound, and it actually was the first point in the album where I noticed what I think is some overdubs done later on, and the only reason I even notice it or think that I know it because I could be imagining it, is because there's a, a portion in Southbound where. I feel like I hear three guitars playing and obviously they were a two guitar band. And the part that I suspect is overdubbed is that they doubled a the guitar line on the guitar that was playing a higher notes. And, and so they had, they probably had the two of them playing in harmony. And then later on they went back and plugged in a doubling of one of those lines. So it's actually pretty subtle, but since I hear three guitars, I think this is an example where there's an overdub.
1: Where else do you hear it? Is it just that one song? <laughs>
0: Uh no, I actually there was a couple of points and it wasn't just the guitars. Let me see, I'd have to have to go through my notes to see where I noticed it. There's there's more than one song where I heard the exact same thing. Um it wasn't I didn't notice like a hard click where a track was being plugged into it. Uh the production and the mixing were were done to where my ear doesn't catch it. Um it's just where I hear three guitars playing and you and in about three different places in the album it's where the, the higher guitar line is being doubled. Um, and it doesn't sound like a chorus effect, so it doesn't sound to me like it's an effect from the show. It sounds like a second guitar being played over the first guitar. And the other uh, thing that I noticed that I suspected was an overdub was, I, as we go further through it, I'll, I'll bring it up again, I noticed on the chorus, on a couple of songs, in particular of the Boys Are Back in Town, where I suspected there was an overdub of some vocals for the chorus. The reason I say that is because uh, Boys Are Back in Town has almost a call-and-response vocal where when its lead vocal is there and then the backing vocals almost overlap what he says. And I hear what I think is his voice in those backing vocals, which I suspect could only have been done with a later overdub.
1: A lot of people call this one of the greatest live albums of all time, uh, and there's so much, so many to choose from in terms of you know bands putting out this style of record. And a lot of people talk about the energy; they talk about the song selection, uh, you know, whether it was overdubbed or not, or whether they had you know they filtered in audience noise you know to make it sound more full. When you look at this album compared to others. What do you feel like? Where do you rank this album?
0: Well, um, I'm thinking back to the conversation we had um, a few months back about our favorite live albums. I don't think this is in my top five, but it is almost certainly in my top ten. Um, and and the, the top five that I have are albums that I, I have like a really deep emotional attachment to. This one is like right on the edge of that. And so I think overall as a, as an, as an indicator of live performance, it's definitely a top 10 album for me.
1: How do you compare this to the studio albums that you've listened to with Thin Lizzy? I mean, do you think it brings more to the music that were on those albums? Do you think, I mean, because one of the comments that I've heard a lot about is the mixing on some of the Thin Lizzy albums was maybe not as the greatest, you know, similar to what Kiss has run into you know, with their first three albums that don't really present the music and don't really, you know, give you the energy that, that, that they had. Do you, right. really, do you think it's equal to, do you think it's more, do you really kind of lifts their music up? Where do you stand on that?
0: I actually think it's, um, a little bit above the studio recordings as much as I love the albums in the studio. And one of the reasons I say that is the, I, I can feel the energy of the band playing together as a unit. And, there was a good job of recording the instruments individually uh, that really brought out an accent at each player's playing. I think that the, the way that um, the bass Phil Lance's bass playing is um, mixed into it, uh, it's done really well where you can hear his bass. It's got a pretty clear tone. It's not overly... Uh, muffled it's not um, fuzzed out too much and he's got a lot of really melodic bass playing I don't think there's enough credit given to his ability to play bass and I think this album um, showcases some of that.
1: Are there any songs that you wish you know were on this live album to as part of that experience?
0: Yeah actually I was thinking about that and I think that they fixed it with the um, the remaster release in 2011, which I'm, I'm debating whether I should actually get that version of it because it has a bad reputation on it, which I think is a fantastic song. And I'm curious to hear, one time when my little hobby band was thinking about songs to add in, just to see if my drummer was going to have a heart attack, I suggested we add Bad Reputation um, because the drums in that are so busy. <laughs> and I was curious to hear that, how that came out in a live setting. So I've wondered about that recording, which I have not listened to.
1: Yeah, there there were a few songs too, you know that I, you know, really wanted to be on there. Like, namely, "Running Back to You," is which is one of my favorite songs, if not my favorite song by Thin Lizzy. Um, "Soldier of Fortune," another yeah. great song too that I, I absolutely enjoy. Um, you know, you can't you know, you ha- can't have every tune on there, but I, I right. think it's a good mix of you know rock songs, you know, versus your mid tempo or your ballads one of the two of the songs that i really think are way better than the studio versions is i think massacre um on this album yeah. really really is lifted by this by the live you know energy of what they were doing i mentioned don't believe a word which i got i can't say enough about that guitar solo uh warrior i think is another one and also suicide which is yeah. a song that I felt that uh, was always good, but it really kind of lifts up here on Live
0: and Dangerous. Yeah, you mentioned Masker, and I actually have my notes of Massacre that has a ripping solo on it. Um, and then it has a cool breakdown. And one of the things that I always think is really um, effective in rock and roll is when you have a repeated guitar line with chord changes underneath it, but the line continues to, to stay the same. And, and the end of, of Masker does that. Um, and I, I agree with you that the, the live version is superior here.
1: Would it surprise you or does it surprise you that this album never charted in the
0: U.S.? You know, um, I guess it does surprise me somewhat just because of the strength of the performance, but at the same time, because the band was not as big in the U.S. um, and had some trouble cracking the U.S. market, that means other than, than the couple of songs off of Jailbreak that everyone knows... But there's a pretty vast catalog that's there that went underappreciated here. And, and I think in order for a live album to really perform well, at least from the outset, obviously over time it's, it's done well um, when looking back. But uh, from the outset, you have to have an audience that's familiar with that catalog. And live albums usually are not the place that people look to to introduce the material. So I, I guess I'm not completely surprised.
1: I, I should say that it, it did hit 84 on Billboard, but the fact yeah. that it didn't even crack the top 50, um, you know, is something. Again, about their legacy is always it's always been the fact that they were never they were never viewed as a major live act during their time here because they could just never capitalize on that big album Jailbreak. They could never capitalize on that big song Boys Are Back in Town. And you know, anyone who's listening or maybe he hasn't really dived into Thin Lizzy's catalog outside of Boys Are Back in Town or Dancing in the Moonlight or Emerald or Jailbreak or even Whiskey in a Jar because Metallica covered that, which by the way, the band hated playing that song. They hated that because it, it's an Irish folk song basically right. is where it right. came from. And um, it's so different than anything that they did um, in their catalog. But It just, you know, if you do have the chance, anyone listening, go dive into some of their albums, especially that kind of that sweet spot era of fighting and Jailbreak and Bad Reputation and Johnny the Fox and Black Rose. You know, you can you can even include Chinatown in there and Renegade, which are you know have really good moments on both those albums. Yeah, and even for those that are John Sykes fan uh, fans, um, the album. Yeah. the album Thunder and Lightning which he came from Tigers of Pantang which was part of the new wave of British heavy metal after Thin Lizzy he went on to record Slide it in with Whitesnake. but it's just some great albums some great records um you know you can you know it's hard for a band to maintain album after album of great music but they did it on, on at least 3 great albums which I would consider you know Jailbreak Giant of the Fox, Bad Reputation. I would maybe put fighting in there too as well, and then Black Rose. I think is a great album too, and then Renegade and Chinatown and and Thunder and Lightning is kind of like lesser extent. All the stuff that came before, Vagabonds of, I forget the name of the the, the full title. Vagabonds of the Western World. Yeah, yeah Vagabonds of the Western World. So they really did, did have a nice run of music. Um, it just never penetrated the U.S. audience and. Live and dangerous gives the audience what they missed, basically, you know, what they didn't, you know, get a chance to en- enjoy and have um, because they were a special band. They were incredibly live. They had a great presence and they really attacked the audience, too, similar to a lot of bands in the 70s.
0: Yeah. Um, and I'm thankful that this album exists because uh, since their heyday was when I was pretty young, um, it wasn't a band that I had a chance to go see. Um, and, and so I get to experience something that I missed out on which I, I think is one of the beauties of, of, of live albums you know you know, I was, we were talking about Southbound a minute ago I also made a note I saw a reference somewhere that says that uh, in some interview the uh, Tony Visconti the producer said that this take of Southbound was actually from a sound check at one of the shows and so I've been, meaning to, I've been meaning to go back and listen to it to see if there's is there audience present that got added in or is it just so smooth you don't even notice that it's there?
1: <laughs> yeah, I got to go back and listen to that, too, as well. That's interesting, because I, I did not hear that um, when I listened to it again over the last week. Um, it's a great track, but, yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of bands, you know, did that, too, recorded stuff. And, in in, you know, if it's if the drums sounded better during the sound check because right. really, you know, from what I've seen and heard in interviews by other artists... If the drums aren't happening in a song, it's just not going to work. You, right. know, you really need to capture the drums and you can't go into a studio and redo the drums on a live album.
0: Right. And you know, actually, the, the, since you mentioned that, one of the things that really impresses me about this is the, the tempo of the songs is, is very even um, and consistent with the tempo of the songs on the studio albums. There's a lot of live recordings that you hear where the songs are played uh, too fast. And, and I know that sometimes speeding up a song can bring extra energy to it, but, but sometimes it sounds too much like nerves. And I know that a lot of times the excitement of, of playing causes bands to play too fast. And sometimes it's difficult to play slow enough. But this is a very measured uh, tempo on all the songs, and I don't notice any deviation that would detract from the performance.
1: Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um... You know, I immediately think of how, in the late seventies, how the song "Cashmere" was captured live in some of the bootlegs yeah. that I have, and it never. It's one of those songs that it's really hard to get that energy live because it, it it's played correctly, but it feels like it's being played too slow. Right, right. It's a
0: timing is a tricky thing.
1: It is, it is, and and if it just doesn't work, or if it's not recorded properly it really leaves a lot to, on the table in terms of what the song yeah. is about in energy. And that's one of the songs that I've always had a problem with in any recording that I've heard of it live is it just never captures what you hear on a studio album.
0: Yeah. One of the other things I really like about live albums is they you often will find a cover song that's included. And the, the fourth track on this album, which is the last song on side A of disc one, is the cover song that appears on this album. Now, not a lot of times people get a cover song that doesn't appear in any studio album, but in this case, uh, it's one that they had covered in the studio, and that was Bob Seger's Rosalie. Great team, uh, great, and great they, cover. Yeah, and one of the things I really like about this, because this is something that happens fairly frequently, I think, in concerts, that um, is kind of like an experimentation thing, is they interpolated one song into another, and so right at like, the tail end of Rosalie, uh, they stuck in there what they call Cowgirls' song, which is a a little bit of the Cowboy song uh, plugged in. It's that breakdown part of the Cowboy song, and it works really well um, merged with Rosalie, and then they come back out of it and go back into the song they were playing, and I think that's a pretty cool thing.
1: I agree. A lot of bands do that, and I always enjoy that interpretation when they do. You know, They, they either add a song or they, you know, they start singing a song that has a similar tempo and similar vibe that has the same type of beat. And they, you know, they start singing a totally different song and then they go right back into their own original song. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like a tongue in cheek wink wink. I ripped this song off to, to write this song. So I've always enjoyed that, but you're right. Rosalie really does come out on this album. It's one of my favorite cover songs. Thin Lizzy really does make it their own on the studio uh, version of it, but uh, this here too, and, and yeah, the cowgirl song thing too, which is a play on cowboy song, which is another great Thin Lizzy song. Um, really, really does work well.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, and then that closes out disc one, uh, or excuse me, side A of, of disc one, um, and it was a good way to, to do that, I think.
1: Yeah, and it begins the next with Dancing in the Moonlight, um, which a lot of people don't realize this is Sin Lizzy until they're told it is because it has been played in movies and it is part of commercials at you know, one time or another. It's kind of like their, their underrated hit that a lot of people know the song but don't know it's them.
0: Yeah, it could be because it's, a, it's like a slower song. It's kind of a mellow shuffle feel to it. Um, it's got, this is, something that we've had online discussions about. It's got an element that, that usually doesn't click with me too much, and that's the inclusion of a saxophone. It's the only song on the on the album that has a sax included, and it was John Earl that was on there playing a the sax, which they actually they introduced him by name during the uh, the course of the, the recording, but it is a, a different feel to it than a lot of their stuff.
1: Yeah, because then it goes right into Massacre,
0: after yeah, that, and that's one of yeah. the heaviest songs. Yeah. Um, from your favorite album. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and you know when you think about that that song too, that's one of my highlights. Like if I would say the three highlights for me is definitely "Don't Believe a Word," "Massacre," and I know I mentioned "Suicide," but I would I'd probably have to go with the uh, the Rosalie version that you just mentioned with the Cowgirls song. Those are like my three favorite moments yeah, in the record. Yeah,
0: um, I think um, I agree with you on Massacre. I've already mentioned Emerald, and then I'm a little torn on. What else would go in there? It could be the Cowboy song. and uh, I'll talk about that a little more in a minute. Um, it could be the Johnny the Fox meets Jimmy the Weed, which is upcoming on this side of the disc.
1: Yeah, it does. And even before that, Still in Love With You is just a tremendous, almost eight-minute version of that, too, as well. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That was uh, from Nightlife. So you're talking about the early part of this lineup. Um, it's, the, it's a ballady song. Uh, has has kind of a minor feel to it. It does have a really good, I think, uh, soaring lead guitar in it. Uh, there's a lot of delay on the guitar, so it has kind of a, a dramatic feel to it. And this is actually a pretty good example of, the, of what I liked about the mix of this album. Because while that guitar still is playing, you can really hear uh, a well-defined bass line playing underneath it. And it shows how melodic uh, some of Phil um uh, bass playing really is.
1: Now, you wanted to mention the song, Cowboy Song. You have uh,
0: some notes on that? I do. Um, it's a song that, it's one of their, I guess, iconic songs. It's back when Rolling Stone actually meant something to rock and roll, it really uh, got some press from them as being like a, uh, I think they pointed to it as almost a perfect rock song. And it, it goes from, it, it's like a, If you take this album and the sequencing of the songs and distilled it down to one song, as far as like taking you building you up and then breaking you back down and building you up again, the cowboy song is certainly it Um, because the song starts off feeling you're thinking is this a ballad, and then it starts rocking and rolling, and then you have a breakdown in it that has a almost a trademark harmony lead to it. That, that just sweeps you back up into the high tempo stuff. I, I really love this song.
1: It is really, you know, encapsulates what Thin Lizzy was, right? I mean, you know, the ballads, the blues, the, the mid tempo, the rock, you know, the rock and roll aspect of it. I mean, they were such a diverse band and this song really does bring forth all those elements of Thin Lizzy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely does. It's, if you have to introduce somebody to Thin Lizzy, it's a pretty good way to do it.
1: Yeah, I agree. And if you haven't heard the cover by Super Suckers, they do a great version of cowboy song. So
0: check I haven't. Out. I'm aware of the band, but I haven't heard that song from them.
1: Yeah, check out their cover. It's really, really good. Um, it's a great version. Cool. As we cool. continue on with the album, you know, outside of Cowboy Song, into obviously their big hit, Boys Are Back in Town and Don't Believe a Word, which have, which are very similar songs, right? And I almost think that they tried to recapture that magic of Boys Are Back in Town with Don't Believe a Word. Um, a lot of guitar harmonizing, a lot of, you know, the same type of structure of the song just weren't able to do it. And I think they they kind of tried to do that in a lot of other songs, too, as they, continued on, but just a great, again, back and forth between those two songs, putting them together, having them stand, you know, um, in, with, with each other is a really cool thing because they're both great, great rock tunes.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny how fickle the public is. Um, I actually think that Boys Are Back in Town, um, while it's, it is a great, strong song, it's definitely not among my favorite songs by the band. And, and part of it could be because it's, it's, it's played to death. It's, it's this one song that, that everyone knows from from the band, um, and it certainly can diminish if you hear it too much, I suppose. I really like Don't Believe a Word uh, quite a bit because it, it's, a, it's a shuffling rocker song, and it has a really good um, lead in it that has like some flashy wah involved. Um, it, it's just a it's kind of a grooving song.
1: I love that guitar solo. I, that's one yeah. of my favorite guitar solos that you know that I know of, or I've you know I've heard. It's just it's got it's just it really it's in the middle of the song like most guitar solos are, and it just it, it takes off. I mean, it's like it just lifts the song up to another level.
0: Yeah, it certainly does. It it, it makes
1: that song completely. <laughs> it really does, and then they go on to Warriors, which is another yeah you know rock tune as well, and you know that continues on with Are You Ready, which closes out the third side of the album.
0: All right. Those two songs, um, I think, are the first examples of the band, including non-singles in, in the set list. I, I made some notes about which uh, al- which of the songs that were on the album were from singles. And these two are both non-singles. And that's another aspect of uh, live albums, and live performances that I always are like when you get to hear some of the deeper cuts that, that don't get played on the radio or back in the day when the radio actually played stuff.
1: You know, there are a lot of songs in terms of the song selection that it's interesting. I I, I wouldn't necessarily change anything on the album, but there's they leave so much out in terms of, you know, what could have been on this album. And there are some disappointing or disappointments in terms of man, I would love to have seen or love to have heard, you know, this album on or this song on this live album. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Like yeah. mainly Soldier of Fortune, which um, is just a a fantastic song. Um, yeah. You know, some a lot more stuff from Jailbreak. Uh, I wish would have been on this album too, as well.
0: I really like Ballad of a Hard Man from Fighting. Um, I think that's a, a really good song, and uh, that certainly could be included. That virtually no one in the U.S. who's not a Thin Lizzie fan would know the song. Um, yeah, I think about, they have some recurring themes throughout some of the songs, too. I kind of put, uh, like, Emerald and Massacre and Warrior in this group of songs that are kind of anthemic. We're, we're going out to, to face the great evil uh, type of songs. We have a mission, and the whole song kind of takes you on the, the story of, of, of the soldier that's involved. It's kind of a recurring thing.
1: Yeah, a Wild One is something that I wish would have been on this album. I mentioned, you know, running running back to you from Jailbreak you know another song that I, I absolutely adore by this band which I, I think is the first power ballad if you will is the song Borderline yeah. from Giant the Fox
0: and then, then we move on to we're now deep into the second disc and, and the song that you've already mentioned that's, that's Suicide which is from Fighting um, another song that you don't generally hear played unless you're a true Ken fan
1: yeah yeah, no, it's a, it's a good way to start the album off. That's one of the things, too, or a good way to start disc four off, is when you look at the set quote-unquote, for this album, right? To your point at the very beginning of the conversation with having Jailbreak lead off the album, would they lead off with Jailbreak and have a song like Suicide be like the fifth to last song they play and some of the songs. Yeah. So you have to ask yourself, I mean, you you would think that they would end with you know, Boys Are Back in Town or right. you know, something off right. Bad Reputation, you know, they're, you know, they're, the album that you know was kind of included in this and they really they really didn't. So I don't know if this is the exact show. Like when you think of Kiss Alive that is the show that they were playing, right? That is right, that is the right. set list. So I don't know if Thin Lizzy did that. that that's one thing I don't I, I don't know if I can answer.
0: You know, actually, uh, and there's a um, I can't remember the name of the the website. There's a website that has that has archived set lists where anyone can go in and put in the set list from a show that they attended, and it has thousands and thousands of shows on there. So I'm going to actually go back and take a look to see if there are Thin Lizzy shows from this era and see if that, the set list. Is in the order of uh, this performance.
1: Yeah, interesting. Because, I mean, it really does. Like, when you look at the songs that are on there, they're all great songs, but you're like, you know, and we've talked about sequencing before. Would I, would I, if I was Phil Lynott or if I was Thin Lizzy, would I, would that be the show in 1976 yeah. or 77? Yeah. You know, like, how do you not end with Boys Are Back in Town that everyone's there to see, you know, because that's the big hit at the time? you know, and so was Dancing in the Moonlight, had some success, and Jailbreak and Emerald, you would think those would be more at the back end of the album.
0: Right. They usually do save things like that for the end, unless they're trying to grab people right out of the gate, which very well could be.
1: Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, As far as, you know, performance goes, you know, I mean, do you think that they live up to what was recorded on the studio albums?
0: Absolutely. I don't hear I don't hear sloppiness. I don't hear mistakes. I hear a tight band playing. Now obviously they could they they picked the performances that showcased them best, but they have a lot of pretty intricate things where they absolutely nail it. And while I don't want a complete rendition of the studio version of a song, I do really appreciate it when the artist is on their game and I don't hear uh, a lot of mistakes here. I don't hear irritating feedback that, that destroys a, an otherwise stellar performance. Uh, I hear a band hitting on all cylinders.
1: To your point, the harmonization of the guitar work on this album is... I, I, I mean, I always imagined that doing something like they were doing, which for, for the most part really was not... Done before then Lizzie, you know, with with them trading back and forth and harmonizing with each other between Gorman and Robertson, um, and you would do this live and you nail it. You don't have the the ability to change it in a studio or re-record it or go yeah. on. Yeah, I mean that takes a lot of obviously practice. That's the obvious thing, but also trust in your partner playing too that he's right. going to hit the notes that he needs to hit.
0: And, and the fact that you have both of them simultaneously playing lead stuff is remarkable because there are, are so many examples of great bands where ego doesn't permit what you see occurring here. Um, you'll either have, if you have two guitar players, a lot of times you'll see one guitar player that takes the, all the flashy stuff and the other one kind of like stands in the background. Like ACDC is a pretty good example of that one. Or you, or like Van Halen where you only have one guitar player and, because they're, I mean, obviously guitar can be a very ego-driven instrument. And so for them to be able to work together um, kind of speaks to their character.
1: Yeah, and I think that is really, I mean, you mentioned it too during this conversation. Scott Gorham's playing is so underrated and so vital to the sound of Thin Lizzy. And it's really captured here, you know, on this album with Brian Robertson and, and having them doing both what they're doing is, you know, at that time was really not prevalent in rock music. I mean, you right. always had a rhythm and you had a lead. You didn't have guys sharing a lead and harmonizing like they were.
0: Right, and that's that was pretty groundbreaking.
1: Everyone talks about Phil Lynott. He's a tremendous talent, and you know, I think the mix between his lyrics and his approach, but those with the guitar work. Really is the defining part of, of Thin Lizzy's sound, and, and it, like you mentioned, it's really captured. You know, there are some things that we wish would have been different with this album. Namely, like I mentioned, I wish it would have flowed all the way through. Um, there were some songs that I wish yeah. would have been included. Yeah. I wish maybe the set list would have, or actually, the, the the sequencing would have been more about what they were playing live in terms of order, in terms of kind of you know pushing stuff around. Um, but all yeah. in all, it is still one of the best live albums you can, you can own.
0: Yeah. One, one song that I'm really glad that was included, um, is on that last disc and that's Sha La La, which I think is actually Sha La 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 La, La or something like that. <laughs> and, um, I think that song, it's a deeper cut song. It was the B side of a single. Um, but it's, it's really got, uh, some cool aspects to it. <laughs> I have it in my notes, the song should be played at 11. Um, just cause it, when I first saw the song title, the first time I ever encountered the song, I thought, what is this? Is Bowser going to come out and be cheesy? <laughs> but, the, but, the, but the song is like a driving rock song and really has like a cool feel to it. That, um, I'm, I'm really happy this is on there. It was uh, from the Nightlife album. So it, it's from the early uh, germination of this particular lineup, but, uh, damn, it's a cool song.
1: (laughs) If you're recommending to thin Lizzy fans or, you know, someone who hasn't been exposed to the band, do you recommend this as their first purchase for the band or do you recommend another album?
0: Well, actually this probably would be a pretty good introduction because they do such a great job of, of capturing some of the magic that they have from the studio. And it is a a great collection of songs. So if if someone um, doesn't have a distaste for live albums, because there are some people that do, um, then the quality of this recording is a pretty good uh, intro to them. I I think if they're going to start with a studio album, I think Jailbreak is probably, because it's got the known stuff on there and it has a couple of outstanding songs, including my favorite, um, that may be the best studio album for them to start with. And that's probably where, Many Thin Lizzy fans started with that album.
1: Yeah, I would. If you're looking for like a compilation outside of a greatest hits, this is a good place to start. If I would recommend, you know, an album to start with, obviously Jailbreak is their biggest. Um, but I would follow that up soon after with Giant the Fox and Bad Reputation. Um yeah. as is yeah. as, as, you know the three quintessential albums outside of Live and Dangerous that you should own if you're if you want to really get into Thin Lizzy's Jailbreak. Giant of the Fox and Bad Reputation, and then kind of like on the outskirts of that would be fighting, um, would be nightlife, and probably Black Rose. I would probably say. Actually, I
0: think my my professional recommendation is that you buy the entire catalog.
1: That um, would be that would be the the way <laughs> to go because there's such a great
0: band. I mean, because you have a diversity of lineups here. I mean, Scott Gorham is the. Is, is the from nightlife on he is the ever-present guitar player and it's actually another testament to him that he's able to play with different uh, true guitar heroes like especially like gary moore and, and make things work but you have like five or six different guitar lineups through the entire catalog of the band so and the band really kind of morphs a bit as they go along i mean their early records before nightlife were much more they had much more of a kind of a 60s feel to them Um, They have much longer song titles on them. Uh, There's a lot more like fantastic type of uh, influences, both in the artwork and the the songs. And they became much more straight ahead rock and roll with that cool double lead guitar um, as they progressed along. So I really think you should buy the whole catalog.
1: You also have in Phil Lynott's lyrics too. the first few albums are very much about his childhood and very much about a young Phil Lynott, you know, figuring out his way in life. It's a very interesting perspective on those first few albums where I think he continued that self-awareness and that self-reflection in his lyrics. But it was more of a mature outlook on life and and more about, you know, he wrote songs about his children, about being married. He wrote songs about, you know, the song Wild One about, on fighting is about his, his mother who was more or less kind of a gypsy who never was yeah. home and kind of left Phil with her family and Phil was raised by, you know, her brothers. And I think he was from a, from a family of like nine or something like that. And, yeah. uh, or, or, the mother was from a family of like nine and, you know, raised by his grandparents and, you know, very, did, did not see a lot of his mother early on in his, in his a in, in his life. Um, you know, he was, more or less abandoned by his mother, she would kind of come in and you know see him once or twice a year, or very infrequent. And you know that song "Wild One" is a very interesting song about his mother, Philima, I believe her name was. Yeah. And yeah. Um, you know, so that's really interesting. So if you're really in the lyrics and you're really into kind of like a like a self assessment, self reflection type of style. Then Lizzie really does that, really offers that, and you really learn a lot about Phil, which really kind of brings you in to their music because he's telling you it's basically a diary of his life.
0: Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of uh, um, personal aspects to, to most of the songs that he wrote, and you, and you can see that some of them deal with uh, like themes of isolation or feeling like you're apart because you're different from the crowd. Some of them deal with romantic entanglements or feelings of lust. And some of them deal with like a lot of the testosterone laden things that many young men feel, um, or wanting to belong to be part of something that means something There really is something personal in most of the songs that they have.
1: He did have a lot of issues, you know, because of that abandonment as he got older and he really found comfort in music. That's really where he, you know, growing up. And I think he was in boarding school in, in Ireland, um, and then from there he went to London and he hooked up with musicians and started a band and he started out really as a folk singer, uh, early on and then learned the bass cause he wanted to start a band and he, you know, no one he, that he liked, or no one that he knew of played bass and he figured, well, I'm going to play bass. I'm going to start this, or he wanted to be in a band and they needed a bass player and he, yeah. and he did that yeah. as the story goes. But, um, it's a, it's a very interesting life and you really kind of learn more about him, through his lyrics. I do recommend, along with listening to Live and Dangerous and those albums we mentioned, getting the book Cowboy Song, which is a great book as well, really kind of explores all that stuff. Um, I did have the pleasure of watching the documentary Song for a While I'm Away, um, which is a good documentary. didn't really touch on kind of the darkness of his life, which I wish they really kind of dived into. But it's all said and done. They're a very underrated, underappreciated band, as you say, Phil, you know, we talk about great lyricists. Unfortunately, you know, Phil's never mentioned in that conversation. And I think he should be. Yeah. And, and Scott Gorham, I, I think, should be listed as one of the great guitar players from that era as well.
0: I think Brian Downey should be mentioned as an underappreciated drummer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, his fills are incredible. And, yeah. And, and every time I listen to Bad Reputation, I'm like, man, he must be just sweating at the end of this song. And if you go through and look at the um, the credits for a lot of songs Brian Downey actually played a significant songwriting role in the band too
1: yeah yeah I did see that I did see that so yeah it's just a band that I wish more people listened to and more people appreciated and you know obviously their day in the sun is over it's long gone but doesn't mean that you can still not discover them and appreciate them and I think you know outside of boys are back in town you know, go dive into their stuff. Listen to it and listen. Just listen to the lyrics and listen how deep and and per, and, and the perspective and just all that stuff is all wrapped in there. It's a it's a really full uh, line is a great artist. Thin Lizzy is just a, is a fantastic band.
0: Yeah, and if <laughs> I dare anybody to listen to um, Cold Sweat, Off Thunder and Lightning, and not feel like charged up after the songs over. Oh yeah, John <laughs> Sykes
1: on that. You know. Is just uh, I mean when you look at John Sykes, you can compare him to Randy Rhodes in that you know the Quiet Riot stuff was kind of like John Sykes being in in Tigers of Pantang. It was very raw, kind of was still searching for his his style and his moment. He gets in Thin Lizzy, he's on one album on Thin Lizzy. He leaves Tigers of Pantang for this band. He really shines on it. Really brings like a, a edgier dynamic to the band that was missing or they never really had before. Then Phil dies after that tour, and then he goes on to Whitesnake and plays in Slide It In and one of the biggest albums of the '80s, the '87 self-titled album. Um, yeah. But you can kind of compare his kind of his career to of that of a Randy Rhodes. You know, being in Quiet Riot and going on to Ozzy. And then, you know, unfortunately, we kind of saw where John Sykes went after Thin Lizzy. We didn't really, well, not really, but we didn't get to see where Je- where Randy Rhodes was going to go after Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. There's it's Phil at death certainly um, leaves a lot of feeling of there's there maybe there are things that were unsaid or songs that were unsung that, that could have come out for us, but at the same time you don't have the slow fade out that some people have too. And so you're not left with disappointment at the body of work that was left behind. So we still can enjoy that.
1: Yeah. And if you watch some of his, some of the Thin Lizzy videos of their career, you know, towards the end, he, he did look pretty shaky. I mean, he did look like, uh, I mean, I, I watched that concert footage of him off the thunder and lightning tour with John Sykes and, and he can, he can barely hold it together. He's, he's struggling up there and, you know, you know, it wasn't long after that, that he got that infection. Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: so go, go listen to this album and, 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 and celebrate the life that was there. That sounds kind of cheesy, but that's really what you're doing. Is yeah. you're, you're focusing on, on when they when he and the band were at their peak and the strength was there, the songs were there. Um, the experience was there. So it's 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 a must-have.
1: It is. It is. And it's a band that you should check out. And I hope you do as a result of this show, of this podcast, of this discussion. And, uh, you know, enjoy Let us know what you think, too. You know, comment on the links that we post on social media. Send me a DM. Write a review on the episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And i like to just thank Rob once again for being awesome and being on the Hook Rocks podcast.
0: Thank you, Jake. There's nothing better than talking about rock and roll. <laughs> I know,
1: right? You know, I get that so much from people I have on, like, dude, I can't talk about this with, like, my wife and, you know, you know, my friends don't really have the passion I do. So, you know, the hour I get to talk to you about this is, like, I just need to do this.
0: Right, like therapy.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, hey, if you need to talk rock and roll and you're finding that you need, there's a lot that you need to talk about and you can't find anybody to talk about it. Send me a direct message and maybe we can st- you know, we can hook something up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Sounds good. I do accept all
1: major insurance uh, you know, companies. Blue Cross, Blue Shield, uh, you know, United Healthcare Group, any any of that stuff we can always talk about. So um, as long as you meet your copay, you're fine. Doc-
0: <laughs> I started to say Doctor Hook, but that's already taken. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Well, all right, Rob, thank you again for doing this. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Jay. I appreciate it.
1: All right, everybody. I'm Jay Scott, and this is another episode of the Hook Rocks Podcast. As I said in the beginning, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, listen to us wherever you do podcasts. Please subscribe whenever you do listen so you get the episodes a little early and you're able to check them out on your phone or on your computer or whatever device you listen to. So I hope you do and look forward to reading your reviews if you're so inclined and enjoying your summer. Enjoy the rest of your week. Take care. Stay, stay healthy. Stay strong. And we will talk again soon. Thank you.
2: The boom time, it is over. A ghost town is all that's left here. The gold rush, it is over. And depression days draw near. Tonight after sundown, I'm going to pack my cake. the sound in my career From the ships docked in the harbor New horizons will appear Tumbling with the tumbleweed Down